Hello, and welcome to In the Privy Council, a podcast reviewing cases heard before the Judicial Committee of His Majesty's Most Honorable Privy Council, brought to you by the Legal Style Blog. I am your host, Elijah Granite. This week, we're discussing the Trinidadian case of Attorney General and Maharaj, the citation for which is 2023 UKBC 36, Trinidad and Tobago. As a reminder, because Trinidad and Tobago is a republic, this case is decided directly by the board, rather than by His Majesty. This is a momentous case of constitutional law, getting to the heart of two crucial issues that affect constitutions throughout the Commonwealth. First, is a colonial-era sedition law repugnant to the structure of a sovereign and democratic state? And second, do savings provisions, that is, constitutional provisions, ensuring that existing colonial law is not invalidated as inconstitutional, protect only laws which are specific and clear enough to be considered proper law? This case arose because one Mr. Maharaj, who has since died, the case was continued by his estate, used to host a radio program in Trinidad, where he aired, in robust terms, his opinions on the issues of the day. One of his episodes involved strident criticism of the, in his opinion, excessive subsidies given to the island of Tobago, the indolence, again in his opinion, of Tobagonians, and the alleged impunity with which Tobagonians are, in his opinion, allowed to commit crimes. These issues exercised Mr. Maharaj so much that he sarcastically said the name of the country really ought to be Tobago and Trinidad, given the allegedly cushy treatment of the smaller island. Subsequently, the police obtained a search warrant against Mr. Maharaj and his broadcasting company. This investigation was quashed because the police were unable to produce the warrant. However, Mr. Maharaj and his broadcasting company feared future prosecutions, and therefore they brought judicial review proceedings contesting the constitutionality of the Sedition Act 1920. That statute, as you can probably tell from the date, was enacted as a colonial ordinance, and as subsequently amended, makes it an offense to do various acts with a seditious intention. The seditious intention is defined by the law as seeking to create hatred against the government or constitution, promoting the alteration of the law by unlawful means, creating disaffection, promoting feelings of hostility towards or violence against between various groups of inhabitants of Trinidad and Tobago. The Act provides that criticism of government error, or action seeking to incite lawful alteration of the law, or highlighting matters in themselves creating hostility between groups in Trinidad and Tobago, are not seditious, and prosecutions can only be brought with the written consent of the Director of Public Prosecutions. The High Court struck the law down as unconstitutional, on grounds we'll discuss shortly. The Court of Appeal disagreed and reversed. Mr. Maharaj's estate appealed to the board, where we pick up the case. For the board, my lord, 
Sir Rabinder Singh, began by considering the Constitution of 1976, which is the supreme law of Trinidad and Tobago. Section 1, which is an operative provision, not a preamble, states that Trinidad and Tobago is, quote, sovereign and democratic state. The right to free speech, as well as freedom of association, is set out in subsections to section 4. However, the Sedition Act, 1920, is on the face of it not subject to section 4, because of section 6, which is a savings provision. This provides that any existing law at the time of the enactment of the Constitution cannot be invalidated by Section 4. Now, Section 6 would seem to end the constitutionality analysis, but at first instance, my lord, Mr. Justice Siprasad, accepted the argument that the Sedition Act was independently invalid because of Section 1. That is, because it was incompatible with Trinidad and Tobago's identity as a sovereign democratic state, due to the Sedition Act's vagueness and its breadth. This discretion could let the government attack critics or otherwise interfere with the substantive guarantee of democracy in Section 1. Mr. Justice Siprasad also relied on the words existing law in Section 6 to argue that the Sedition Act was so vague and unpredictable it actually ceased to be law for the purposes of Section 6. On this appeal, the two issues were thus. First, if the Sedition Act qualified as existing law for Section 6, and second, independently of Section 4, did the guarantee in Section 1 of a sovereign and democratic state invalidate the Sedition Act? Let's start with the first issue. In order to determine if the offense of sedition is too vague to be enforced, we have to first understand how the courts would apply the offense. If the common law restricts the scope of its application, then it becomes much more like existing law. Consequently, Sir Rabinder began by noting that the meaning and interpretation of the law of sedition has developed over time, and here he cited a very helpful paper by the New Zealand Law Reform Commission. In the days of the Star Chamber, in the 17th century, any criticism or speech against authority could qualify as seditious libel. There was no requirement that the speech call for violence or disorder in order to be seditious. Criticism of authority was good enough. However, as it so often does, the common law developed with the times. By the 1880s, the great jurist, Sir James Fitzjames Stephen, in his History of the Criminal Law of England, could state, citing English case law, that an intention for violence or disorder was an integral element of seditious intent. This is especially relevant because the Trinidadian Sedition Act highly resembled the Model Sedition Act proposed in later editions of Sir James's Digest of the Criminal Law. This similarity to the standard also meant that the practice across the Commonwealth can provide persuasive authority as to interpreting the offense of sedition. In India, the sedition offense was upheld as constitutional by the Supreme Court in Kedarnath Singh and State of Bihar, 
1962, All India Reporter, page 955. In Canada, in the famous case of the Crown against Boucher, 1951, Supreme Court Reports, page 265, the Supreme Court dealt with a Jehovah's Witness who had been arrested for distributing an allegedly seditious pamphlet. The law, however, much like in Trinidad, did not define what seditious intent was in such a case. The case was decided, by the way, purely on common law principles, since neither the Canadian Bill of Rights nor the Charter of Rights and Freedoms had yet been enacted. In the Supreme Court, my lord, Mr. Justice Kerwin, found that only an intent to create violence or disorder against authority would qualify as sedition, and merely stirring disaffection was not enough. All this suggested that the Trinidadian Sedition Act offenses were appropriately circumscribed by interpretation. The counsel for Mr. Maharaj's estate contended, however, that an old decision of the board from the then colony of the Gold Coast, now Ghana, the Crown against Wallace Johnson, 1940 Appeal Cases, page 231, uh, in fact meant that the sedition offense was very broad. There, my lord, uh, the Lord Chancellor, the Viscount Caldicott, had held that the English common law requirement expressed by Fitzjames Stephen was not applicable because the conditions in Ghana as a non-self-governing colony were distinct to that of England. However, like Mr. Justice Kerwin in Boucher, Sir Rabinder disregarded this case, because Trinidad and Tobago is, of course, not a colony. It is a sovereign, democratic, and independent country. Sir Rabinder further noted that, since the case of Wallace Johnson, the living tree of Privy Council jurisprudence has developed the concept of the principle of legality, by which fundamental rights can be restricted only by explicit language to the contrary, which also mitigated against a broad interpretation of the sedition offense. For all these reasons, it was apparent to Sir Rabinder that the true construction of the Sedition Act in a trial, and remember that here there has been no trial, it is essentially a hypothetical case, would be that it imported a requirement of violence or disorder as part of seditious intent. This clearly makes it narrow enough and certain enough to be existing law. However, the board also took issue with the submissions that a law's protection under the Savings Clause in Section 6 required the court to first actually check the quality and sufficiency and certainty of the law. This would throw huge sways of the statute book into doubt until a court actually examined them. It would undermine the intention of the drafter to avoid calling existing statutes into doubt and to uphold legal certainty. Now, the main authority for the idea that Section 6 can uh, be negated by questions of whether or not something is or is not existing law by its certainty is a case from the Caribbean Court of Justice, that's CCJ, in McEwen and Attorney General, uh, 2018, Volume 94, West Indies Reports, page 332, Guyana. There, the CCJ, uh, per the president of the court, my lord, Mr. Justice Saunders, relying, incidentally, on a proposition advanced in a textbook uh, Mr. Justice Saunders had authored extrajudicially, found that a Guyanese law prohibiting a man wearing women's clothing in public for an improper purpose was not law for the purposes of the Savings Clause. 
However, the problem for this argument is that the board has already respectfully declined to follow McEwen in Chandler and State of to Trinidad and Tobago, 2023, Appeal Cases, page 285. And therefore, McEwen simply is not good law for the purposes of the board with regards to savings clauses. The Caribbean Court of Justice and the board have, as is their right, simply diverged on this point. Thus, the idea that there's a gaping hole in Section 6 where first the law must be analyzed to determine if it qualifies existing law against criteria of uh, certainty and sufficiency and other checks is just not viable before the board. This brings us then to the second issue. Does Section 1 of the Constitution, remember the guarantee of the sovereign and democratic state, independently nullify the Sedition Act? The argument for Mr. Maharaj's estate was that the democratic state envisioned and guaranteed by Section 1 depended on freedom of expression, and that the Sedition Act undermined this impermissibly by destroying the possibility of democratic debate, since the government could simply arrest any critics it liked for sedition. The board, as one would expect, certainly concurred that freedom of expression was, to quote Lord Steyn, the lifeblood of democracy. But it found issues with the argument in detail. First, Sir Bender considered the meaning of Section 1. The board saw the guarantee of Section 1 as being concerned with the structural components of the democracy, namely the ability of the people to elect representatives who will constitute a government and enact laws. The Constitution allocated the elected and appointed parliament, not the judiciary, the democratic right to determine which existing pre-independence laws should continue in force and which should be repealed. A sovereign state has to allocate in its constitution the balance between the legislature and the judiciary in the protection of rights. That particular compromise, the board noted, is unique to each country. The United Kingdom, with its unlimited, at least in theory, parliamentary sovereignty, is at one end of the spectrum. The United States, with constitutional review, again, in theory at least unlimited, is at another. The drafters of the Trinidadian Constitution chose somewhere in the middle, perhaps quite wisely. There is no democratic requirement that all legislation, or indeed any legislation, be subject to judicial review for freedom of expression or any other fundamental right. And Trinidad and Tobago's status as a sovereign and democratic state was not undermined by this choice, it was embodied by this choice. But it's to say, if we followed the contestation of Mr. Maharaj's estate, it would have undermined the constitutional scheme, taken powers away from the democratic legislature, and left the constitutional balance incoherent. The only argument left, then, was one based on the Australian cases establishing the implied freedom of political communication, by which the High Court of Australia has found the democratic scheme of the Australian constitution implies an ability to speak freely on political matters. This, however, was completely inapplicable, given the structure of the Australian Constitution, which lacks enumerated fundamental rights, and also lacks a special savings clause for existing law. Thus, this was totally irrelevant. Consequently, the board dismissed the appeal. Let's turn now to our analysis of the case. In this case, 
really, despite being essentially a hypothetical dispute, has everything I love in the Privy Council. Constitutional law, check. Freedom of expression, check. Common law statutory interpretation, check. Musings on the nature of democracy, check. There are so many threads poking out from this case, but for the sake of brevity, I'll keep myself to just three. First, this case reminds us that laws do not exist in isolation. The written law cannot be understood without the common law rules and canons for interpreting it. And therefore, to determine if a law is too vague, we must first actually establish what statutory interpretation tells us the law means. The centuries-old move of common law jurists to import, in light of the changing nature of the political order towards democracy, a requirement of violence and disorder into the otherwise absurdly broad sedition laws has transformed the character and substance of the law. The law is what the common law makes of the statute, not the statute by itself. This reminds us of the crucial importance of studying statutory interpretation, which, in my opinion, ought to be a mandatory subject on the LLB syllabus. Second, this case illustrates the richness of the Commonwealth constitutional tradition. The rigid separation of powers and strict allocation of judicial review, familiar from an American context, is one model, but it isn't the model predominantly used in this tradition. I love Sir Rabinder's analysis of the unique and sovereign balance the Trinidadian constitution has struck, giving the representatives and senators, rather than the courts, the decision of how to deal with existing law. This also comes into play in the qualification of constitutional supremacy by Section 6. The U.S. Constitution qualifies nothing. It is supreme to everything and can strike down anything. The Trinidadian framers recognize the disadvantages for legal certainty in subjecting all existing law, a pretty vast statutory framework, to potential nullification, and chose not to have a radical shift to a complete system of judicial review. This method of compromising the need for a codified constitution and the desire for legal certainty is a beautiful aspect of the tradition of Commonwealth constitutionalism. And it is good that Sir Rabinder's analysis quite rightly centered this unique choice of the Trinidadian people. Finally, this case highlights a very interesting feature of the Trinidadian constitution, one which is shared by, inter alia, the Constitution of Mauritius, as discussed in Sir Rabinder's judgment. The first section, rather than merely the preamble, provides an operative and substantive clause guaranteeing democracy. Democracy, though, isn't defined. Some of the arguments raised by Mr. Maharaj's estate seem to suggest a singular model, importing all manner of implied rights and structural implications from the single word democratic. The clear placement of these provisions within the scope of the operative parts of the Constitution means clearly they have some effect. But there is a danger in an overly broad interpretation of this. The mere fact that the democratic character of the state is justiciable, and in Mauritius this has indeed been used to strike down legislation, cannot be a blank check to the courts to write in additional provisions they wish the Constitution had. This guarantee of democracy is too important to be trivialized by overexpansion. Well, thank you very much for listening to another episode of In the Privy Council, brought to you by the Legal Style Blog. I've been your host, Elijah Granin. If you want more legal content, visit our website, legalstyle.co.uk, 
or follow us on Twitter at LegalStyleBlog. If you have any comments, suggestions, rants, or raves, the email of the podcast is editor at legalstyle.co.uk. We also welcome any ratings or reviews on your usual podcast platforms. Until next time, goodbye. And remember, together we aspire. Together we achieve! <laughs>